Hey, Sean, how's it going? David, it's going great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm trying to think. We recorded our last one. Was it between Christmas and New Year's? Yes, it was, because I just got back from uh, upstate New York. Right. Um, but yeah, since then, obviously, New Year's happened. How was the rest of your break? How was, uh, how was New Year's? It was good. You know, I've been doing a lot more cooking. I made this what I wanted to tell you about. I made a bison roast. So I got a bison, what do they call it? Uh, an English roast cut. And uh, went out and got a red wine, got a, uh, a, a Chianti, trying to figure out what to do to, to braise it and to make the, uh, like the gravy for it, basically. And uh, it turned out surprisingly good. It was very tender. That's what um, I was talking to the guys, talking to, to Jeff. And he was like, I didn't know bison is leaner than chicken. I'm like, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, definitely. That, that sounds amazing. Um, for our listeners that, that care, um, I, I, had a fail, I had a failed Instagram account, cooking account called Sean Cooks Things. It was, it was pretty cool for like three months and then it just like failed, but that sounds like that dish sounds like it'd be better than anything else that I had on that page. Um, so I'm glad that I decided to do Yeah. I don't know if we have a material to do a food podcast, but I think this gets kind of our needs met that we do five to 10 minutes on food and drink before we do mythology. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one, one other note, I did have a series on, on Sean Cook's things where I, I I had like a series of like 11 or 10 or 11 posts and like, it was like Norse mythology food, like number one or something like that. And I would choose actual stories from Norse mythology and I'd say, Oh, and then this is what Thor ate before he murdered the giant or something like that. And it was, it was completely idiotic because I would also use like real historical moments on other parts of the, of the Instagram. But like, it was like, Oh, this is what William the Conqueror ate before his takeover of England. he, use the complex carbohydrates given the energy to take over his his country and things like that and the, it was the it was is fun whether whether your me, instagram but... gets our podcast more listeners or whether our podcast gets your instagram more views that'll be the, the real thing. i think my i think the instagram is going to get more views and as a result the podcast is going to get fewer yeah. listeners because they're gonna be like well this sean is once again the worst person in the world this is horrible. So, well, but so what, what, yeah, we're, so we're going to, we have, we have a Twitter. I'm going to work on the Instagram. I want to put some pictures up on it. So we have an Instagram and we'll uh, get all social media connected and everything. Podcast awesome. related. All right. Can't wait. Anything else? Or should we, should we jump into it? Uh, nothing too much. I, uh, I, I started, uh, or I watched uh, Spider-Man over the break and I watched uh, Don't Look Up. And I also watched uh, It's a Wonderful Life for the first time. Those are the three movies that I use the break to watch. I almost say that's strange. You've only seen it for the first time, but I've probably only seen it once or twice and I can't remember it exactly. <laughs> it's a wonderful. It's good. I see what the fuss is about. It was, it was a good yeah. movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Spider-Man was awesome. I'm not going to give any spoilers because I don't want to paint, like I don't want to ruin our podcast by just no, like giving no. movie spoilers too, all the time. It's too new of a movie, but we, one day we'll do an episode on Thor Ragnarok and the other Thor movies and how they connect to this and what, that'll be a thing one day. It'll be a three episode series on how Chris Hemsworth gets those abs. Yeah. Um, it'll be great, but uh, don't look up was great as well. Or no, it was pretty good. Um, I, I enjoyed it enough, but that's, I kind of just took the break to, to chill and uh, you know, do some reading. I, I started reading a new book, um, which is actually a gift from my wife. It was, if you're in a life, it was actually Matthew McConaughey's new book. Oh yeah. Um, I heard I, about that. Yeah. I, I yeah. So I, I listened to this podcast um, and I read this book by this guy named Rich Roll. He's this ultra marathoner um, who's a vegan. He used to be an alcoholic, but now he's like sober. And I listened to his, I, I read his book a while ago. Then I started listening to his podcast and he had Matthew McConaughey on an episode like last year where he talked about going to the desert just to like get away from everything. Yeah. And he ended up re- writing this book and my wife heard me talk about it like a year and a half ago. So she got it for me. And I have in two sit like in two sittings, I've gone through eighty percent of the book. It's actually it's pretty oh, wow. entertaining. Oh, that's great. So I that uh, I enjoy it. It's called Green Rich Lights. Roll is, what's, what's the name of the book? Uh, so Matthew McConaughey's book is called uh, Green Lights. Green Lights. Um, Rich Roll's book is called Finding Ultra, and that's what I read like three years ago. Yeah, Rich Roll is friends with um, Ryan Holiday, who does the Daily Stoic podcast that I really enjoy. So maybe we get some oh, really? podcast synergy going on between the ones you listen to, the ones I listen to. We just keep that sounds. Uh, name dropping it and Google will put us in the algorithm. Yeah. That sounds great. And I, I did have another update on another podcaster I listened to. Um, I know previously in our episodes, I mentioned the Nordic mythology podcast um, with uh, Dr. Matthias Nordvig, who teaches at CU Boulder. He posted on his Instagram account about a uh, 
free course through Coursera that he's offering on um, it's like Norse mythology in the sources. And I think that's kind of necessary for us to understand. So I I signed up for it and I I started listening to some of the, uh, to, of some of the lectures. If I paid $50 for it, I could use, I could like take a test and get like a certificate and like actually put on my resume, but I didn't feel like paying the 50 bucks yet. I don't Um, don't know if that actually helps us, uh, especially with the podcast. Was that give us any more cred than we already have? uh, Maybe it would. If I like, if I send my resume out to everybody, they'd be like, oh, well, I didn't want to listen to Sean. Dave is cool, but like at least Sean has the certificate. Yeah. So (laughs) now, and and you're bringing up one of the things we kind of talked about either on the air or off the air that, uh, you know, is our audience, the people who really get this part of, Norse mythology, what are all the sources? Or do we want to bring in a lot of people who are like, we don't really know much about Norse mythology, but when David and Sean talk about it, it sounds interesting, but we don't, we're, we're beginners, right? So that's a little bit the plan today. One, mostly we'll go through the myth of the Aesir Vanir war, and then you'll talk, and then you'll, so we'll tell the myth in its entirety. So people really know what, the, what we're talking about. And then you get into those details like we had in the last few episodes. Um, and then I was going to start with just the, the one thing I didn't get to finish with last time, but was there anything else, Sean, before I jump into that? Yeah. So no, no local, uh, beverage, um, this week I have a, I have a cheap Cabernet that I got from Audi, which is still really good, but that's what I'm drinking this week. How about you? Anything? No, no, I, I just got <laughs> some, I got some Chipotle I'm going to eat after we record. It's <laughs> not quite a success. That's cool. That could be our bit where I talk about like whatever I'm drinking that week and I ask you what you're drinking and you're like, oh, not this week. It's, and it's, then, always, it's always water. Yeah. yeah, There we go. That's that's healthier. So it's all good. I had some red wine this week when I was making that roast. Yeah, that's pretty good. Awesome. All right. So the thing that we, we left off on last time, we're talking about the the world tree and that part that I'm especially interested in, that there's the three kind of layers some side, you know, diving into Wikipedia stuff I was looking at, that actually that's a theme that's in some of the Mesopotamian religions and mythologies, this idea, and it's, it's kind of in Christian mythology too, right? It's that there's earth where we are, there's heaven, and there's an underworld. Those three tiers are very common, right? That then we try to split it up into three parts in the, the world tree. But like you were saying, it's, it's hard to figure out exactly what they are, right? Is it just Niflheim and Muspel, the hot and the cold under, underworld? Or is hell uh, where the dead are separate or included? That, that part gets messy, right? But that there's three tiers, the roots, the body of the tree, the branches, right? That's pretty well established in all, all the sources we get, right? Yeah. And then this was an idea that comes back to, it kind of goes back to the, the logo that my wife made that, uh, of the world tree. And it's an image of a world tree that's in other cultures too. I think it's in Native American cultures, definitely in some Siberian cultures from what I've read, that the world tree is kind of a metaphor for a person or for consciousness or even the brain. So this again is coming from me, um, you know, stealing uh, ideas out of Echo of Odin book by, uh, it's by a guy who's a, a psychoanalyst. So yeah. that's kind of like Freud is a psychoanalyst, Jung is a psychoanalyst, it's a certain type of therapist kind of. And, and so it's his idea, but it's, I've seen it in some other sources, this idea that the world tree represents the brain. So there's this, they call it the, the tripartite model. Of or as you mentioned, the consciousness, which right. is also and like the brain in physical form. So it's like, kind of like the yeah. hardware and then the software. So that's where the, the tripartite model of the brain is that you have your lizard brain, your reptile brain, right? People kind of hear that phrase sometimes, right? That's your, it's your brain stem. It's things pretty low in there. It's the idea that that's what keeps you uh, breathing. It's what makes you, you know, want to eat, what makes you want to reproduce. It's things that are very low basic drives in your brainstem. So basically, as long as that's intact, your body keeps breathing. Even if other parts of your brain weren't working right, that keeps your basic systems functioning. So that's the idea. That's the, that's the underworld, right? That's the, the roots of the, uh, the world tree. And then you get to the next level and that's the mammal brain. That's where your fight or flight response is, the, you know, feeling fear, feeling, so you think about the lizard brain, right? Like crocodiles, not really afraid of much. I don't know. I don't know if crocodiles are ever afraid of anything, but I think for the most part, they attack they don't do a lot of being afraid, running away, right? But you get to mammals and, and there is that part, right? There's, 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 there's aggression too with mammals, right? But then there's also um, fear running away. There's also that part of the, like the, the pack or the, the herd or the, the troop for apes, right? And that's all, before we even evolve into humans, right? That's happening in the middle brain, right? So then that makes okay. the connection. Third, third layer, the top layer is the, the cortex or the, the neocortex, especially the front of your brain, that's where, that's what makes us human. That's what makes us different, that we can think, that we can plan, right? The language, that, um, that's also where kind of 
sensory information that we notice things uh, that we can think about kind of our senses more than other animals do. Other animals all sense things, but we think about what we notice, right? And then mm-hmm. the intention to move, right? You know, do animals just react? Do they run or do they really think about each step they take, right? We, we think about each move we make. Um, why am I explaining all of this, right? It's an idea that there's, there's something about this that the Norse kind of are representing in their world tree, right? Because as we talked about the underworld, we had talked about like the yin and yang and this energy, procreative energy, and just basic life is created out of the Ganunga gap. Get it right? Uh, Ganunga gap. Yeah. Ganunga That's gap. better than you did the last, ep- or the yes. last episode. So. And uh, is, is the underworld, right? And then the middle realm, that's where the, the Jotunheim is, right? Jotunheim is very much that, because uh, the giants were born out of the Ganunga gap. And then there's Jotunheim. And it's a lot about, you know, aggression, right? That's generally the, they, they just destroy things and there's aggression there, right? And that's a part of our brain, right? I would say that, you know, humans are kind of somewhere in the middle. We have a potential to be any of these things. We have a potential to be like giants. We have a potential to be like the, the Nibelungs, the term I like for the, the elves and the dwarves, which is a little more, because they're a little more crafty, but they're also, they're not good. They're not very moralistic, right? They don't, they don't care about good and evil. They desire things. They crave things, right? That they, yeah. they want, they want beauty. They want gold. They want these things. Um, that's a piece of the human personality too, right? And then, and then you get to these higher level things where the gods are. You get to a lot more complexity. You get to values, you know, things we might, I'm probably butchering it too. Yeah. Have them all? Have them all. There we go. Oh, yeah. okay. It's cool. Right. We can cut that part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have them <laughs> all is the, the, yeah. Have them all is the sayings of the high one, um, sayings of Odin, where he's given yeah. his thoughts on right. how to be a human, pretty much how right. to like live your life. Yeah. And like what you're supposed to, like what, what your values are supposed to be. Yeah. And so then, and so maybe then that ties into my other, as I'm using this metaphor that, okay, so that's the hardware of your brain. What's the software, right? So this is another three-part model that especially is attributed to Freud. Um, Some of the ideas come from before Freud too, but is that there's your, your ego, right? That's, that's your personality. That's my ego is talking to your ego. It's the part I'm very aware of. It's how I present myself to everybody. It's uh, the part when you think about yourself, usually what you're thinking of. Then there's the the id. Are you familiar with that at all, Sean? As far as that? No, I, I know the ego. I do yeah. not have the id. The, the id is, and I think it comes from uh, your drives, basically your unconscious urges, right? So these would be, and I might come back to this at the end if we have time to loop back into it, but they call it the, the life instinct, kind of the urge. Oh, I like they use the, they actually use Greek mythology in the way the Freudians think of this. There's uh, eros, which is like your, the life or the love kind of, urge, desire. And then there's th- uh, Thanatos, the death instinct, the death drive. There's this, some kind of drive towards destruction or self-destruction, right? And this is all in, in Freud's theory, right? But it goes to the idea of were the Norse creating their own kind of theory when they described the world tree. So again, it is kind of those urges. It's things we kind of don't want to admit about ourselves, but we realize that is what drives a lot of human behavior, right? When you, when you see it, aggression and lust, right? The giants and the dwarfs, right? And then there's your super ego. So this usually is considered things like moral values, right? The things you learn from your parents, the, the messages from God, the, um, like we we're just talking about the virtues and values that your culture tells you how you should act, right? It's kind of, you know, your ego interacts with it. You think about it, like, this is what's important to me, but also sometimes you do a thing that you know is not living up to your values. Where does that value reside in your super ego? The idea is maybe that's represented in the front of your brain somewhere, but maybe it is just a uh, spiritual or in your unconscious or, or something like that. Right. So now Sean, did, did it make sense? What, what do you think the audience is wondering after I just go through all that? So he, I'm wondering a lot, but I think yeah. like with the id, like you're, it's more so like talking about like our instincts. Yeah. And it's like, I think that's where you're talking about potentially the lower three, like right. the lower third of this world tree. Yeah. The ego is who we are. That's right. what we kind of like, outside, like outside of our physical bodies, like that's what we can see of each other and how they portray themselves and how we portray ourselves. And then like the superego is what we hold ourselves or we try to hold ourselves accountable to, which in this case would probably be like the Aesir and just living in Asgard. And, you know, what I find interesting here is that if you have your ego, like that is who you think you are, or that is who you see yourself as, but like, depending on what happens on our day to day, life, we try to achieve our values or we have to like go into the id and like go to, to our flight yeah. or fight instinct. 
Yeah. And so like, that's where we like do have this like drive to like delay death. And that's sometimes um, people have confront a problem when they start to realize that they're not their ego, right? When you do something and it was your id acting, you know, and you weren't conscious of it, then that's kind of a crisis when you realize like, wait, I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought I knew who I was, but there's other pieces of me that I'm not. Uh, now I'm, now I just became aware of that. What do I do with it? Yeah. And it's kind of funny because like, if somebody gets caught, like gets like arrested for doing something horrible, like they always say, well, that's not me. And like, right. it, it is, but like, that's like, they're like, that's them saying their it is not their ego, I guess. But, mm-hmm. you know, at the same time, you know, we have these thoughts about what we are supposed to be. And in this case, I find it very interesting because like, I'm always like very hard on myself. I am very hard that I cannot match in your words, my super ego. And like one thing's like in meditating, I I listened to this like meditation one time where uh, what's the word for it. One of the things that we had to, like I had to kind of repeat to myself is you are not your thoughts. So like, that's like saying you are not your super ego. And it's kind of like a way to say like, you don't need to worry about matching what you hold yourself accountable to because you are yourself kind of thing. Yeah. No, in uh, in the the Jungian um, kind of psychology, psychoanalysis, they talk about, the animus being kind of the critical father voice within a person, right? So that could be God, it could be Odin, it could be Zeus, but it's an aspect of the super ego that might be overly critically critic, uh, criticizing you, right? Like <laughs> you can do better, you need to do better, right? When you hear that voice in your head and it doesn't stop, that like that that kind of is like Odin or Thor or something, right? I mean that's that's a metaphorical way to tie in those uh, theories. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because if you go back to like, if let's say you're a person in Scandinavia 1500 years ago in this like tribal society and like, let's say, let's say the average person knew about Havamal. Let's like, and we don't know that they definitely knew about this like poem, but in Havamal, Odin says multiple times, like, don't get too drunk. Don't get too drunk. And it's like, you don't want to act like an idiot where like you're in a social event where somebody could kill you and probably get away with it. Like you also might be a person that does get too drunk. And you're like, oh shit, I, <laughs> I fucked up. Like, I, I didn't like follow what I held myself accountable to. I didn't match my super ego. So I just like, I just, I'm trying to like tie like your thoughts of this, um, and your thoughts it, of like the like, world tree. Worse. Yeah. And cause I, I don't know, like, I know we, we, one, we haven't really gone into like Havamal for any of the, uh, source or sources for the stories that we've talked about yet, but like they, a lot of people that like practice Norse paganism may look at that as a way to like live their lives. Like it's very, yeah. It's, it's like based on individualism, like this sense of moderation, especially when it comes to drinking and like not eating too much and getting fat and just like living your life, how you would have to 1500 years ago. And like how much of that evolved from the id, you know, like where we couldn't drink too much because if we drank too much and we fell over, we would freeze to death at night and die, you know, like the real consequences are immediate, immediate consequences. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Does that make sense? Like, did I, did I kind of pick up on that? I think that helped that helped to connect. Yeah. Like how were the, how were the Norse using this? Right. And yeah, I, I wanted to introduce it now. If people are like, what, this seems a little off of previous topics, because it's going to connect back in when we come to things like even psychedelics, shamanism, other ideas that I find interesting. I want to, want to bring it back to this. So I had to, had to yeah. lay it out. Um, but, but that makes a lot of sense because like, if you look at the, the Christian religion, like you see those bumper stickers, what would Jesus do? Like that's the superhero. Like you hold yourself accountable to acting like Jesus, who is literally a divine person. And that's impossible. Like in the Christian religion, everybody is going to be a sinner. Well, you know, Um, just as you're saying that, that the, the Christians don't do a great job of explaining what do you do about the it or what is the it, right? A lot of times it may be a sin, kind of what you were just saying, right? And that's like the evil part of yourself. You're born with original sin. And is that a mentally healthy way to think of yourself? That there's an evil part of you that's trying to destroy everything. Although, as I just talked about the death instinct, maybe that's accurate too, but yeah. Well, I mean, that makes, it does make sense. Cause like, if you're, let's say you think about the id and like, this is the first time I'm learning about, but like, let's say you and I were in a forest and like this 400 pound grizzly bear was chasing after us. The id would say, oh shit, I need to worry about myself. Like I just need to outrun David. And yep. you would probably say the same thing. Whereas that would go against what would Jesus do and say like, Oh no, I need to make sure we're both safe or I need to take a dive and like save my friends more so than my life. And yeah. in the middle part of it, the ego, like I don't think anybody is, any of us know what we would actually do. So you can, all you can do is like, say, I want to, I, what would Jesus do? I want to be Jesus or, you know, I need to save myself. So what would Odin do? Like, what would, what would he tell us in Havamal? So if like, if you're anybody like in 2021 or 1500 years ago, in Scandinavia or anywhere else in the world, like, wh- at what point do you just do what you need to do 
do what you think you should do to better society? And what point do you just like say, fuck everybody else. I want to survive and I'm going to make sure that happens. Right. The idea is, so I think this is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You fight, you flee or you freeze. Right. So if you can run, you run. If you think you can't run fast enough, you punch the bear in the nose. If you can't do any of that, you just freeze and you hope it leaves you alone. And all this is to pass on your genes, right? That's how it all ties back into the lowest level. Right. Why do you have that middle brain structure to fight and flight? So you can spread the spread the species. That's what we evolved to do. Yeah. And until like the, the world tree Yggdrasil, I know I mentioned in previous episodes the Norns who guide like the fates of all men, all creatures, including the gods, because they 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 like to set our fate. There's nothing that we can do to to affect what is going to happen to us. But it's very interesting to think about like that, maybe as like another lower world where it's it's like the id. Yeah. Um, but like, in, but like, at what point do you care about the superego or do you worry about the ego? So it's, it's very interesting to like, if you're, if you're a storyteller or you're a part of a collective group of people that said, this is what happened, this is how the world started. And there's a world tree, Yggdrasil, here's like the different planes of existence within the world tree. Like, why do they, why do they come to that conclusion? You know, why do, why do people act bravely sometimes, right? Is it, is it just fate or is it their free will in that moment? That'll be. Yeah. And then, then we would just get to the point where like, it doesn't matter for me because I would try to be like the best person in the world and I would still fall over and hit my head. The Nords would, the Norns would say, well, Sean's going to Valhalla, but then I would hit my head and they would be like, well, this has never happened before. Sean (laughs) fucked it up. He ruined the entire system. He's too much of a klutz. It's, it's always faded. So it had to happen. (laughs) Should we? Should we move to the the myth of the day, the myth for for this episode? Yeah, yeah, let's let's do it. Cool. So we're going to transition into what we know about the Aesir and Vanir War. I know in in the previous episode we talked about the nine worlds. Again, I'm doing that in quotes, and we talked about like the different tribes of beings. Like we talked about the dwarves, the elves, um, the Jodnar, the Aesir, and the Vanir. And I made a comment about how the Jodnar, the Aesir. And the Vanir, I, I more so look at them as different tribes um, as opposed to different species because they can marry, they can produce offspring. Um, Odin himself is 75% Jodnar and 25% Aesir, but he's also the chief of the Aesir. I mentioned Frey, who is a Vanir, and he is the he was put in charge of Alfheim, which is supposed to be the land of the elves. And so, like you could like look at all these beings as like some like lesser, some some superior, some inferior, but like I like to think of these different planes where these species lived or like these tribes lived. And then I like to look at the actual inhabitants as different tribes as opposed to like different uh, species. Um, but we did discuss the Vanir. We discussed the, the Aesir and we briefly mentioned that there was a war between them. That's the story is how, how they all interact. We described kind of all the players before. And now here's a story of them interacting with each other. Is that good enough set up? And should I read the myth? Uh, yeah, if you want to read it, uh, you can, I can, but like, uh, yeah, I'll, with- I'll read it and then I'll let you do some more of this interpretation explaining. So after I read it, what does all of it mean? What, what, what could people, things they might not know about it, right? Just to hear the story because Sean's read and then the lectures, the courses, Sean's got all this stuff on <laughs> what is going on in the background. We'll probably come back at the end to more. What can we learn from it? What does it mean? What do we think about it? Right. That's my, that's my angle. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. And and the one last thing I say is I think that this ties into like, the finale of our, our world building of the world that starts most of the, the stories in Norse mythology. I think once we get into season one, there's two stories in particular that like pick up right after the Aesir and Vanir war. So I think if we do start season one next week, or excuse me, if we do start season one in the next episode, that's going to be a perfect place to start. And we just thought the Aesir Vanir war was going to be perfect for us to kind of get into as we lead up to that episode. Um, but yeah, take it away, David. So of Odin's war with the people of Vanaland or Vanaheim. Odin went out with a great army against the Vanaland people, but they were well prepared and defended their land so that victory was changeable and they ravaged the lands of each other and did great damage. They tired of this at last and on both sides appointed a meeting for establishing peace, made a truth and exchanged hostages. The Vanaland people sent their best men, Nord the rich, his son Frey, and they don't mention here but also his daughter, Freya. The people of Asaland, or Asgard, sent a man called Hone, whom they thought well-suited to be a chief, as he was stout and a very handsome man. And with him, they sent a man of great understanding called Mime. On the other side, the Vanaland people sent the wisest man in their community, who was called Kvas, K-V-A-S-E. Now, when Hone came to Vanaheim, he was immediately made a chief, 
and Mimei came with him to be his good counsel on all occasions. But when Hon stood in the things or other meetings, if Mimei was not near him and any difficult matter was laid before him, he was always answered in one way. Now, let others give their advice. So that the Vanaland people got a suspicion that the Asaland people, the Asgards, had deceived them in the exchange of men. They took Mimei, therefore, and beheaded him and sent his head to the Asaland people. Odin took the head, smeared it with herbs so that it should not rot, and sang incantations over it. Thereby, he gave it the power that it spoke to him and discovered to him many secrets. Odin placed Nord and Frey as priests of the sacrifices, and they became the Diar of the Asaland people. Nord's daughter Freya was priestess of the sacrifices and first taught the Asaland people the magic art as it was in use and fashion among the Vanaland people. While Nord was with the Vanaland people, he had taken his own sister in marriage, and for that was allowed by their law, and their children were Frey and Freya. But among the Asaland people, it was forbidden to intermarry with such near relations. So we learned one thing is I should double check my pronunciation of all the names before we do that. Oh, wait, Sean, I can't hear you. Are you muted? Sorry, I was muted. Um, I think you did a lot better than I ever will. Um, with pronunciations again, like l- old, learning old Norse for me is a lost cause, and pronouncing the words uh, in most cases is a lost yeah. cause. Well, and that's why as I'm in the middle of like I don't like Vanaland. I want to call it Vanaheim. I don't like Asaland. I want to call it Asgard. I'm hoping I'm saying them. <laughs> well, no, it's it's funny you say that, and I'm glad that you um. It's it's from a source called Hemskringla. So I know in previous episodes, in this is in 98 percent of the stuff that I discuss in this episode with my I'm putting this in quotes expertise is from the Prosetta, which was written by Snorri Sturluson, and the Poetic Edda, which is a series of poems written around the same time, but we believe those poems were actually initially conveyed verbally when this religion was practiced. I do have some sources from Prosetta and the Poetic Edda, but when, in researching about the Aesir Van Air War, a lot of it did come from, come from Heimskringla, which you just read to us. So I'm going to get in a little bit into the sources, and then I'm going to talk about one of the, some of the funny things that I noticed about Hemskringla. So moving into the Poetic Edda, in the Poetic Edda previously, when it comes to the claims of the creation myth in some of the nine worlds, I mentioned a poem called Voluspa, which is the prophecy of the Cirrus. Odin awakes this witch or this Cirrus from the dead and asks her questions about the world. And through this conversation with them, um, she starts sprouting lore about the world, and um, and that allows us to like understand a lot of parts of Norse mythology, like the creation myth, or in this case, the Aesir Vanir War. So I'm going to actually read a, an ex- excerpt, excerpt, excuse me, from Bolaspa. It stands as 21 through 24, so it's only four of them. Again, this is the the Cirrus speaking to Odin. I remember the first murder ever in the world when Gulveg was pierced by spears and burned in Odin's hall. They burned her three times. She was reborn three times, often killed, not a few times. Still, she would live again. They named her Heath when she came into their homes, a sorceress who foresaw good things. She knew magic. She knew witchcraft. She practiced witchcraft. She was the pride of an evil family. Then all the gods went to their thrones, those holy, holy gods, and came to a decision about whether they should endure Gulvig's depredations or whether they should seek revenge. Odin let a spear fly and shot it into the fray. That was the first war ever in the world. The outer wall of Asgard was broken. The Vanir knew war magic. They trampled the valleys. So in all of the Poetic Edda, I believe those four stanzas highlight everything about the Aesir-Vanir war. And it, it sort of paints some of the picture that you also mentioned in Hemskrinkla. This character named Gulveg um, obviously was versed in magic and witchcraft. She came into Asgard, and I would imagine she came invited. The As- like the um, Asgardians. Odin wanted to learn magic. He wanted knowledge, wisdom, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that would be very consistent with Odin's um, lust for knowledge and his search for knowledge. But it seems like something happened, whether the witchcrafts made the Aesir think that they were being tricked or they maybe they didn't understand what Gulveg was bringing to the table. They started a war with her people, which at the very end, they 
it's clearly the veneer. And they mentioned the veneer and the veneer were strong enough to break the outer walls of Asgard. Um, Based on what I've read online, there's enough information to assume that Gulveg is Freya of the Vanir. Interesting. Yeah. Because they they say she's like a master of witchcrafts. You know, she she understands these spells that they use in battle. And other sources allude to the fact that they say the same things about Freya. Yeah. I I mentioned that as I was reading it, right? Because that's the thing that stood out to me that it said they sent Frey and his father and then later in the thing, they're like, oh, and Freya was there too, of course, right? And it's like, you know, they, they, they sent the men and the women happened to you know, go along with them. But then she's maybe the most important sorceress of the whole group, right? Well, yeah. And I think she, like, after the war, and I, you may have mentioned this in the source you just read, but, like, she taught the Aesir wizardry after the peace treaty. So yeah. it's, it's very interesting because, like, this whole battle seems to have been started by n- maybe not necessarily miscommunication between the Aesir and the Vanir, but, like, a misunderstanding. Well, misunderstanding and, and fearing magic, right? So what I've read online is that it was called a sadir magic. It was the term yeah. even in um, Strolson's time. The thing I read online was that it was still practiced. Strolson knew about Sadir contemporarily because it was still practiced by people in the mountains between Norway and Sweden. Basically, the Christians, of course, had chased all of the pagans and magic practitioners out far into the mountains where it was hard to track them down. But it was still happening. And so it's the idea that this came from the Vanir, whatever that means. But Strolson actually knew what that was all about. It was happening. But as a Christian, he couldn't really be a big fan of that. Yeah, and and that's where like we can discuss maybe further in the episode where we do get into like shamanism and everything like that. But I I find this very interesting because like if you like and this is a very broad generalization that's probably not true, but like if you look at like all the wars that have happened in history, they probably have all started because of misunderstandings. And if the Aesir have this person that they're maybe initially like let's say it's Freya or like Golveg we know, but like let's say it's also Freya if they have this person coming in and showing them these amazing things, at what point is it like the the witch trials of New England in the 1600s and saying, oh, well, no, this is not good. Well, this is not what Odin we believe. This is not our way. Like, he already seemed like he had his own magic and he was doing necromancy, right? That, so there's another source. I can't, yeah, can't cite my sources, but read online. So it's not my original idea. Why did Storlson especially like this idea of mummifying a head and then it still allows you to speak or uh, reach a higher wisdom that actually the, the Christians and the Catholics have done this for a long time where they'll have one of the bones of the saints or some type of yeah. aspect of the saints kept in a gold crate. And it's the relic of the city. And that's why you pilgrimage to this church to see mummified piece of a saint. Right. So that was like a very Christian thing to do of Odin. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I, I think like with any religion, you'll see that like these artifacts or like what's left behind from these powerful people, like whether it's a, a saint, for Christians or like, as you read the head of Mimir, you know, like that, like what power does that hold for a group of people? And so like, I think this, this whole thing is very interesting because the sources that I like, I typically read don't give us that much, but using every source we have to paint a picture of what's going on. I like to think that the Aesir were initially captivated by Freya, but they didn't understand this. And like, maybe they thought that like, this was a threat to them because Freya was so different. But at the end of the day, like when they had their peace treaty, it says Freya, like they exchange hostages and Freya taught them like witchcraft and wizardry, which Odin again, consistently used. So Odin was probably happy. Well, and that comes back to one of my themes I'm gonna, that I have for the podcast, certainly, which is kind of the, the feminist pagan perspective, right? Which is why, why am I promoting the pagan, feminist perspective? It's the idea that somewhat maybe our culture is lacking that. If it takes only a patriarchal view, what harm does that do even to men to not know their, their feminine side, right? So this it's this myth. You said it shows up in multiple sources. There definitely is a Aesir Vanir war. That's a thing that they feel like needs to happen in the mythology, right? And that the, the Vanir are led by a woman who's a sorceress, right? Freya. And Odin is the man who's, uh, you know, kind of a warrior, but also he's the one who really wants wisdom. He wants to find some deeper wisdom, right? So there's a, comes back a little bit to some of the, the model of consciousness, right? Even though it's a story about wars between different tribes, right? It's that what are we supposed to learn from it? It's also, you know, so just to go back to the myth, the things that stood out to me, that actually Odin doesn't really try to get revenge. He, you know, he places Frey and Freya and all of, you know, as high, highly respected priests in, in charge of sacrifices. And, and they're so pissed off at the Aesir for sending a good looking kind of dumb prince with an advisor. Being like, Honier, this guy doesn't yeah. know anything. Of course he doesn't know anything. That's why we sent the advisor. And you killed the guy who actually knew something. Like, what, what are you guys doing? I don't know. That's what their culture did. And 
you know, the Aesir are so much more respectable uh, that they don't kill their hostages or something. Yeah, I have a few thoughts on on that. So one, first of all, with Honier, the uh, the idiot that the Aesir sent to the Vanir, I mentioned him in the previous episode or, or two because in the creation myth, Snorri mentions that Odin, his brothers, Vili and Vey, found these two pieces of driftwood and created humans from them, Askanembla. In the poetic Edda, however, it was Odin, Honir, and this guy Lothgar. And so when I read that initially, I was like, wait, that's not Villian Bay. That's not Odin's brothers. Who the hell is this? But now like Honar has already popped up twice in our stories because he's given as a hostage to the Vanir along with Mimir. And Honir's the idiot. Mimir's the um, smart one. Another thing with um, Voluspa in the four stanzas that I just read, the last uh, stanza mentions that Odin threw a spear and like that kind of started this war where they had they had the choice to like either just like let Freya and the Vanir be or start this war. And then Odin threw a spear, which signified that he chose war. First of all, like if you had to put a name at, like for, for an Odin as a god of something, I personally like to think he's the god of humanity, but Odin is probably the god of war. He orchestrates wars. But this reminds me of a portion of the book American Gods by Neil Gaiman where the character Odin he was trying to craft his spear in modern day times and he was trying to like orchestrate this huge war and then he as the god of war he was trying to throw this spear after he created it to start this like the war to end all wars and because he's the god of war that he like assumes more power and he just like becomes like the top dog of power like he's like the god of everything. So I, I I thought it was funny because like I read that book three years ago yeah. and they mentioned Odin trying to get the spear to throw it. And I think that the Voluspa is the part of the sources where that kind of like leads to, oh, if you throw a spear that like starts a yeah. war. Did we talk about the significance of his spear as they say, like how it was crafted and what it represents? I don't know if you read this thing or is something I popped up in my reading. So we, we did discuss last week when we discussed the dwarves, one of the yeah. items that they made was Gungnir, Odin's spear. That's all I know about it. We, I don't think we discussed so the one, significance and this would probably be it would be good for us to have the myth that explains these things I'm saying but pieces of them might come from two different myths would make it confusing right yeah the, the thing I read about it was that it's a spear that never misses right so when he throws it yeah there's exactly what he's doing and he hits his mark it never misses the other interesting thing is what gives the spear that power is that he carves his agreements or treaties into the handle of it so when he gives you his word it's carved into his spear. And if he's not uh, good to his word, then his spear would lose that power to be able to hit everything perfectly accurately. There's a lot of depth you could go into that. That would probably be its own episode on Odin's spear if we wanted to. But I, well, I so it sounds like if he, th- it sounds like if he threw the spear and he misses, that like is indicative of his ability to like influence. It, it would, yeah, like he, going back to fate, he would have had to have done something wrong earlier for it to miss, right? It was never going to miss unless he did something that the missing was a sign of clearly he, he did something wrong. So I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's pretty cool. I mean, like, cause if, if like Odin is a God and like, I don't think the Norse ever thought that their gods are perfect. Yeah. Like they, like they don't, they don't like view their gods as um all powerful and all good. Like the Christians do with their God. But like, I do think it's interesting if they like do hold Odin on a pedestal, like maybe that higher level super ego, as you mentioned, like, what does it mean if he misses? Like, did something bad happen? Keeping your word is on that super ego level. And so that would be, it also goes a little to the idea, which is common in magic, absolutely pagan magic, but also in, in the old Testament, but maybe less in the new Testament that sacrifice, right? That you have to sacrifice, right? Odin doesn't just get a spear that always hits it requires that he keep his word, right? That, you know, for, for other kinds of magic, there's always something that you pay. You don't just get it for free, right? You want to put a curse and you want to kill somebody as the Vanir probably use this kind of tricky magic on the Aesir. Well, you pay a penalty for that somewhere. That's the way magic is supposed to work. Um, yeah. In the Old Testament, that's how it works. You have to sacrifice things. You have to get goats and you have to slit their throat. You have to tie up all the, uh, the fat and the bone and skins and you burn it to uh, honor the gods, right? But then we lose that once we get to, Christianity where Christ is the only sacrifice and now sins are forgiven. I told, I told Jeff that at some point in this, I would naturally segue into the, uh, the sacrificial phallus. And uh, of course <laughs> I found it here because that's what the spear is, right? If he does, if Odin doesn't sacrifice to keep your word as a sacrifice, because you could lie, right? But when you keep that sacrifice, then his spear would be no good anymore. I'm not going to go any further on it today. That's, <laughs> that's from a blog, the blog post I'm going to write an article on that, but. Sounds good. Um, it sounds like a man is only as good as his spear. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that is, 
I don't know how we can beat that, Sean. But <laughs> well, no, no, it's 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 cool. But like I know you mentioned, like sacrifices. This isn't exactly the point you were trying to make, but like there are sacrifices within Norse mythology alone. Like Odin sacrifices himself to himself in, in one story that we're gonna, I'm sure, cover in another episode. Um, and he sacrifices his eye um, episode that we're gonna do very soon. Um, but like if you're if you're somebody 1500 years ago, and like you want to make sure you can make if like let's say you're gonna go viking or go raiding in the british isles from norway it's like a three-day four-day trip via boat it's very dangerous like do you want to sacrifice like one of your livestock to make sure it happens like as a as like a sacrifice to thor who may control the winds and the weather or like yord who is a vanier god who like is the god of the sea or something like that you know but it's it's very interesting but and it's, it's the, the thing I, I think i meant to say was i got sidetracked with my stuff was um the two different types of magic that they're doing, right? So we kind of getting a hint at what is the Aesir type of magic. It's about keeping your word. It's maybe about like this honor system, right? Everything we talked about, super ego. That's what is somehow ties into Odin's power, how the berserkers get their incredible strength, where the Sadir magic is something different. We won't go into all of it today. That'll be for that episode. You know, why did they have a conflict about their two different types of magic don't align, right? It's sort of this very masculine, the, the, the sky father kind of idea about uh, keeping your word and honor codes and all of this versus feminist or feminine type of magic coming from uh, Vanna land. Yeah, definitely. That, that's, that's very interesting thought. Um, I, I keep thinking about, this is my weekly um, mention of the Elder Scrolls universe, but like the elven races and Elder Scrolls are more likely to have magic powers and the humans or um, yeah, the human the human races are more likely to like have to win over win a, a war over strategy or just like brute force. So the whole time like reading this about this war, I kept thinking about the Elder Scrolls. But like, yeah. well, that's the thing in most um, kind of role playing games, the humans are adaptable. They can do a little bit of anything, right? They can they can't do it quite as well as a giant. They can't do it quite as well as an elf, but they can do a little bit of all those things, right? So it's where you mm-hmm. learn, maybe inspired by some of those different ones that are more expert in that. Yeah, for sure. Whereas the elves and Elder Scrolls are like, you see this in like the like Lord of the Rings as well. Like they're just like, oh, we're above everyone. We don't need to change. But yeah. anyway, we don't we don't have to get too far into no. that. Um, I, I did want more... to make sure that we covered yeah from that from that myth before I like. Yeah, um, I was actually going to move into the the Prosata. There's a a very quick blurb about the Aesir Vienna War, but it's actually the beginning of the story about the Meta poetry, which I think is more so one of the stories that the Aesir and Vienna War is like a prequel to. Um, so we are going to probably discuss that in the next episode or two. But in in the Prosata. I know I mentioned in previous episodes, the first part is called Gilfinigin. And again, I, I pronounce that for the 40th different way, but Gilfinigin is like the first part of the Prosetta. In that portion of the Prosetta, you have this character, Gilfi, who travels to Asgard, which Snorri just says is on Earth, um, because he, liked to, he likes to humanize all the gods. And he, he connects with this, these three beings on a throne high, just as high, and third. This poem from the Prosetta, or this uh, story from the Prosetta comes from the second part, which is Skald Skoppermal. In Skald Skoppermal, there's this being who travels to Asgard, similar to in Gilfinigin. His name is Aegir, and he's at this um, banquet with the Aesir, and he's sitting next to this, this god, or this Aesir god, Bragi, who, again, there's no like god of this god of that but braggy would be considered the god of poetry so agir asks braggy where did poetry start and then he immediately says well it started with the a- the aesir vanir war in which um at the end of the war he doesn't go into the details of the war like we have we already did in this episode but he says the aesir and the vanir after the war as a part of their peace treaty they all spit into this vat and this being named Kavasir is born from the spit. So this this like being is made of spit and like personification of poetry. And he knew like all like the beautiful words that goes into a poem. What I think is funny is when you read Hemskringla, and I I read this too, which is also written by Snorri Starlison, he mentions that Kavasir was part of the deal, part of the swap. The Vanier gave Kavasir to the He was the wisest man in their community, right? Yeah. 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 In, in this story, and this is like one of the funny parts, times where Snorri contradicts Snorri, in, whether it's like the Prosetta or Hemskringla, in the Prosetta, he says like, oh, well, they, they spit into this vat and created this being. Whereas in Hemskringla, where he's like claiming they're all humans. 
Yeah. He says, oh, well, they gave him Cavassier as well, who was very smart. Right. And was that the peace deal? When they all spit into the cup together, is that them all coming together finally in some yes. kind of a peace? Yeah. Yeah. So this is after the war. And and so like with, with these stories, and I know we mentioned them, we mentioned like all three of the sources. You mentioned Hems Kringla. I mentioned the Poetica and the Proseta. Yeah. You get to paint a picture of somewhat why the war happens. Like there may have been some misunderstanding with Freya or Gulveg, but there was this like neutral, consistent like balance of power between the both of them. There was a balance between like this magic, a balance between this um, strategy and these war gods. And there was no clear winner. So eventually they just got tired and they, they settled for peace. And one of the peace deals that they made was spitting into this fat, creating Kavassier, who we will discuss in a future episode when we discuss the meat of poetry. Yeah. That kind of like wraps up the Aesir Vanir war as we know it from the sources. Yeah. Now I'm having all kinds of thoughts of wanting to dive into that, but I think it is for the next episode. Part of the other thing I'm thinking is that just how getting it from all these different sources, right? It actually gives you a better picture, right? Because Kavasir is not a particularly interesting individual, right? He's just sort of like paralleled as the Vanir sent their smart guy. You know, they sent, uh, the Asgard sent Mimir as their smart guy, right? But then you get this, yeah, I'll wait for, I think I'll wait for the next episode to talk more about uh, Kavasir because I got all kinds of thoughts on him. Um, well, yeah, and it's it's very cool because like from from the story of the Aesir and the Vanir, um, there's two stories that we're going to go into. One involves Mimir, whose head was cut off. Then another one involves Kavasir, and that goes into a story called the Meat of Poetry. So we have like our next two stories for for the next episodes. Yeah. But I, I did have one funny thing yeah. that I, I I found in Hemskringla, yeah. which Hemskringla, written by Snorri Sturluson, is like his story on the history of the Norse Kings and similar to the prologue of the pro Proseta, he humanizes these gods. He says like, well, the Aesir are from, from Asia they're from Turkey, which is in Asia minor. He says, they just migrated to Scandinavia. He does that in the prologue of the Proseta. He, and he, and he does that in Hemskringla, but then he goes further down, down and down. And he ties that family line all the way into some of the Kings of Scandinavia to the point where we can actually say this person existed and they were the king of Norway. Like he has one chapter on Harold Fairhair, who's considered the first king of uh, Norway, one on his son, Hakon the Good, who's considered the first Christian king of Norway. There's a chapter on Harold Haldrada, which was the king of Norway in the late 11th century. And he was involved in like a real life clash of the kings. And that's a Game of Thrones reference for like the clash of kings of england he invaded england along with william the conqueror and it like created this like fun fun like little year um which kind of shaped england to this day but he goes over like these kings that we know existed but like the first part of it in yingling a saga he like just talks about these gods that became men and he like gets down into like legendary characters but then like eventually he gets down to like characters that actually existed and he's like just trying to like kind of paint a picture of where his people came from or where like the norse came from and maybe my last thought on that is that they didn't want to let these stories go right because even when their pagan religion was found to be false and they're going to be christians they had these stories that had all of this power they had this symbol of a world tree they had all this way of understanding their own minds their culture their world and how can we not just throw it away, right? How can we not just bear, burn all the books and bury it away, but we can keep it some way, right? So that goes back to my previous thought of, is there some type of subversive element in this, right? They get to keep all those stories alive and say, they're just the people that are now your good Christian kings, right? And, and, that's, and it, that's a very good point because like you see this like in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in England, you see this with Snorri and like Norway, but he also talks about like the kings of Sweden and, and like briefly the kings of Denmark. Like if you are a Christian, in the 13th century, like Snorri was, and you're writing these books for people of that day who are also Christian, you don't want to go to them and say, oh, well, you know, your ancestors didn't mean shit. Like they, well, they didn't mean it shit. Took, but. It took an incredible amount of work from him, right? So was it all just him being, you know, because that's what we think about today, like the, the marketing department, the people who, you know, do advertisements, <laughs> and they're just like, how do we persuade these people to get, get one over on them, right? But was he actually just trying to save his culture, right? Because he was so motivated. Like you said, he rarely had these kind of canon errors. He rarely like got a thing wrong in two places, right? You know, why, why did he care so much, right? It's besides just bringing everybody on board, right? This part of saving his culture, that might be, because that's the only reason we're talking about it today. If it wasn't for Snorri, I would imagine, yeah. 
Yeah, it is like this is like one of the things that fascinates me about this time. And Snorri provided literature that like most of it he probably made up based on this literature you can like compare it to like other ancient texts and like it allows you to like not necessarily paint a picture of what actually happens but also like what people may have wanted to believe or did believe and i think that's like so fascinating when it comes to like figure like putting yourself in the position of somebody you know a thousand years ago like 500 years ago 1500 years ago etc and that's where like these stories even in Hemskringla, where he is clearly saying, oh, well, the gods are people. And like, this is what happened with the war of the people of Asseland in, in Vanaheim. And it's like in, in Hemskringla, he mentions that the Vanir are the veins. And he like mentions the Aesir are not from Asgard, they're from Asseland. He's meaning Asia Minor, like Turkey, essentially, right? That's something I caught. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like he, in, in this is something that's pretty consistent with like the Proseta and uh, Hemskringla. He said that the Aesir from Turkey, which is in Asia Minor, they migrated to Scandinavia. But in this war with the Vanir or the Vanes, he mentions that the Vanaheim or the Vanes are from a river called the Don River. And I actually looked up this river. It's in Russia and it connects with the Black Sea. Right. So he's. The the Vanes conquered part of that territory at the time, right? Maybe makes a lot of sense. And then I'm just thinking right now that that, because I think I introduced some tangent about Mesopotamian, Babylonian cultural models that have this three tier, right? Did that actually come from Turkish people somehow managed to uh, translate some information up to the Norse, right? That would be pretty fascinating. Yeah. And, but it, like it, what it says is like Snorri knew about these areas in the time that he was trying to like claim these things happened. But like, I, I just think it's, it's, it's very fascinating to like say, oh, well, yeah, the Aesir of the gods that um, my, my ancestors worship were actually people from Turkey, they got into this war with these Russians, these assholes that were into witchcraft and wizardry, you know, like those damn Russians. Um, but like he, he tries to tie. Oh, we're gonna story. make enemies with some Russian sorcerers on Twitter. I'm just a little worried. Oh yeah, no, I I already assume that based on this uh, podcast that everyone's gonna hate me. Yeah, he he writes about these the Vanir or the Vanaheim people in Russia, and in like then if you like compare that to the poetic Edda, you see Freya who eventually becomes like one with the Aesir. She was apparently what started the Aesir Vanir War. Her brother is Frey and their pa- their father North like came over to the Aesir and it like represented this peace treaty and this exchange of hostages. You can imagine like Game of Thrones, this happens a decent amount at the end of a war. Like a, a ruler may have just been like, you know, what? I don't, I don't have the manpower for this. I don't have the money to like fund this war. I give you my daughter. You can, you can marry her to your son you give me a hostage and we're going to be friends from ever. And I think it's funny because like, that's one of the first stories in Norse mythology, you know? Yeah. Should we call it? Yeah. I don't know if we have anything else. Um, No, I feel good about this. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Have a great day. We'll see you next week at the start of season one, I guess. Have a good night, Sean. Talk to you later. You too.